Okay. Any any questions? Yes, Colleen. Okay, so um, one of the things that you really pointed on was the reason for coming to Christ. Yeah. And, um, you know, to really check your heart and, and just why are you coming. And so I think about someone who's an unbeliever yeah. or um, someone who's got a curiosity and coming in. And so, I mean, they don't have an understanding maybe fully yeah, of yeah. why. But I, but I wonder about trusting the Lord that, you know, whatever it is that brings you there, whatever yeah. it is that brings them into the church, whatever yeah. it is that gets them there, even if their reasoning is completely wrong, um, and maybe it's wrong for months, um, but trusting the Lord that he will, um, you know, really shape their hearts or change them to come for the right reasons. And so, you know, if, if by saying like what you, you know, the way you explained it, like, I agree with what you're saying for a believer or for a person who really knows, but for others that it could turn them off that. So, so let me, let me clarify. I spoke to people who are in the room. And so if you're in the room, you've, you've come. John's gospel, turn to chapter 4, has people who come with... God, God can bring people in any number of ways. And it may simply be your marriage falls apart and you see the strength of your neighbor's marriage as a believer. And you're like, I want to... I'll use an example I use. I want a better marriage. That might be something God uses to draw you in. You are going to need to press through beyond that. I'm talking to a room full of people. If you're here and you're in a chair and you've only come to... Jesus is going to help in my life purpose. You need to press on further. That is not to say that, and, and so if I could, that isn't an inroad someone can make. And in your evangelism, by all means, mention God does, he does give purpose to your life, and he does strengthen your marriage, and he does give you a sense of identity. Don't leave it at that. That's true as far as it goes. Absolutely. So I, I tried to say, speak specifically to, to the people in the room. Not your neighbor who's reading his Bible because, man, I, 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 my life's going nowhere and I want to find some. Great. Just keep, you should, come, you should come meet Jesus. I mean, that, that's the other thing I love about both, so John 4, I love about Andrew. He doesn't need to be an apologist, doesn't need to speak Greek. You should, you should come meet Jesus. And that's the same thing that's going to happen when Philip meets Jesus and he goes and finds Nathan. You should, you should totally come see Jesus. And so if you get people reading their Bibles, awesome. To people in this room, if all you've come to is, Jesus is a good teacher. My life has purpose. That's not good enough. Keep, keep on coming, um, which is what I'm trying to... But your point of not wanting to scare someone away, fair, fair, fair enough. So in, in John 4, the woman at the well, right? Um, um, verse 39. Um, Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, that's all she said. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. That's not, here's the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She's saying something like, he's a prophet. He's exercising supernatural knowledge. And the people come, but then they press on through. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his words. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, John doesn't leave them at, here's a guy who told me everything I did, that gets them to Jesus, and then coming to Jesus, they press on to, this is the Savior of the world. So John gives us a model even for people simply coming because somebody said, this guy knew stuff about me, he had no business knowing, come and meet him. Great. That's, that's a... But they get to, this is indeed the Savior of the world. That would be my pressing for people. Is, and if your friends are reading their Bibles, 
keep pressing them till they get to that. That, that would be all I'd say. But no, I wouldn't want to discourage someone. Um, but in a, lot of, in a lot of attempts to make the gospel more palatable, we can, if we just talk about purpose, we can stop talking about sin, judgment, and hell. And so in an attempt to stop talking about sin, judgment, and hell, we can emphasize, here's someone who's going to give your life purpose. And that's true. But if you never mention, here's an atonement for sin, you're going to get people signing up for Jesus because they want a little extra zing in their step. That's my concern, is, is, is you want to point them to, if you can speak, the, the key factors are, this is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's chosen. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. And if God's using those lesser things to bring people in, that's his business, great. Let's not, on our end, purposely shift the mark to something easier to sell. That's... So, that work? Okay. Yeah. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Yeah. yeah. No, no, we'll get to it. Because what keeps people from Jesus is they love their sin. What keeps people from Jesus in John 5, they love the glory that comes from man. The, the contrast, this, not this. Why don't they want Jesus? Well, because they love the glory that comes from man. Why do they not want Jesus? Because they love the darkness, because their works are evil. And if you never, yeah, yeah, okay. Sorry. Other thoughts, questions, complaints? A few weeks ago, you mentioned that Jesus didn't become Jesus till he was born. Right? Techni- so, technically, okay, yes. Let's yes, just go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So today you talked about Jesus' baptism, and the baptism is anointing. Was Jesus not the Messiah until... He was baptized in the Holy Spirit like that? Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism. It's, it's kind of like he's born king of the Jews. But really, he isn't enthroned king until the resurrection and the ascension. He ascends to his father's right hand. So is he the king of the Jews prior to the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension? Yes. Is he actually in that role? Is he in that office? Because in my understanding, the way... The way Paul cites Psalm 2, today I've begotten you, that in, in Psalm 2, that today is the day the Davidic heir becomes king. And in that day, he enters into a, a sort of on-earth representation of the Father in heaven. He's a son to him. So when that's applied to Jesus, it's connected with the resurrection. So if you were to press me, at what moment does Jesus enter into kingship? He enters into functional kingship at the resurrection and the ascension. But he's born king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He's Jesus. John can speak about Jesus in eternity past as Jesus, even though he doesn't receive the name Jesus until his birth. So I'm not going to quibble and say he's not the Messiah until the baptism. Here is where the anointed one gets anointed, is all I'd want to say. Is in, What does it mean he's the anointed one? It, it means this. So if you want to say it beforehand, it'd be something like, here's the one the Lord will anoint. It's the Lord's anointed. But when does that anointing happen? I think it happens at the baptism. Um, so, that, yeah, I was just observing, further, there are, you pointed out too, in the first part of John 1, there are a lot of names, you know, the word, the light, and all these things, yeah. but never Messiah right. until after that point. Right. Well, and he starts out with the unusual ones, the word, the Lamb of God, and now in the mouths of these witnesses, we're going to see people meet Jesus and just boom, Philip's going to be another one. He meets Jesus, just Nathaniel. And what does he tell Nathaniel? He tells him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote. 
you know, and then and then Nathaniel's going to say, "You're the you're the king of Israel." So the familiar titles are going to come out, but the the original titles, the Word, the Light, the Lamb of God. John starts with unusual, well, with uniquer ones, and then moves to the more common ones. Fair. No, it's it's an interesting concept, but I, I as best as I can understand, when does the anointing happen? J- Jesus is anointed by the Spirit to perform his ministry. Prior to his baptism, Jesus. I suppose, is the Lord's anointed, but he isn't functioning as the Lord's anointed. He's the obedient son of Mary and Joseph, who, even though he must be about his father's business, goes and learns to obey them back in his home. Once the baptism happens, and in Luke marks this, um, if you turn to Luke 4, Luke highlights this. Um, in Luke 4, 14, this is after he gets baptized, he goes out in the wilderness, he's tested, and he comes back. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report went about him throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Luke frames this as Jesus returning from temptation is returning in the power of the Spirit. He's, he's received the anointing. He's empowered for ministry, and then he's going to do his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that, that Old Testament picture of whether it's Saul having oil poured upon his head and the Spirit coming upon him to empower him to rule until the Spirit leaves him, or whether it's other leaders who receive the Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Holy Spirit came and went. It wasn't a lifelong, permanent deal. Jesus receives the Spirit to empower him for ministry at his baptism. So that's... Is he the anointed before that? Yeah. But the same way he's born king of the Jews. But is he king of the Jews in Mary's arms? Well, yeah, but... Not like he is now. Um, anyways, that, that's a good question. Any other? Tim? More clear, okay. Uh, in, re- in relation to the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. is, is this, recognizing the Holy Spirit's always been there, but is this the, the, I guess, the first entrance of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with Jesus' um, um, I guess where the Holy Spirit is is actually indwelling people after the entrance of Christ, or no? The Holy Spirit. Might, so might the question. The question is: um, Make sure I get this right. This is the first reference to the Spirit in John's Gospel. Um, is this the first reference to the Holy Spirit coming? No. In the Old Testament, as early as the artisans who put together the gold craftsmen and bronze craftsmen for the tabernacle. God's Spirit came upon them to enable them to do the work. So it's not always God's Spirit coming upon someone to enable them to speak. It might be to, to make pomegranates out of brass and bronze. But what you get consistently is the Spirit coming upon someone to equip them for ministry. So Moses, um, Jephthah, the Spirit comes upon him, which is weird because he makes that up rash vow. But clearly in the case of Saul, Saul gets anointed and God gives him his Spirit uh, to to enable him, he changes him. Saul was hiding. In, is Greg in here? Rolak? No. Greg could tell you about this. Saul's hiding in the luggage, and God says, I'm going to make him a new man. I'll put my spirit on him. Um, now, that's a temporary, non-permanent thing. In the New Covenant, one of the things that makes the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant is the New Covenant comes with better promises, and one of those is God seals all of those in the New Covenant with his Holy Spirit. So that permanent sealing Holy Spirit is, is, is unique to Acts 2 and beyond. 
that isn't taking place in the Old Testament. Having the Holy Spirit doesn't, isn't a mark you're necessarily going to heaven. I don't think we'll see Saul in heaven. It, it's possible, but if, if he is, he, I mean, he struck down the priests at Nob, all of them. He summoned up a, the, the, the uh, witch at Endor to summon up a spirit. I mean, the guy's out in left field, but he had the spirit upon him. He was the Lord's anointed. So in the old covenant, it doesn't mark your believer. That, that, you ever trouble? You ever sing that song? You know, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, take not your. Whole. Well, when David's saying that, he's not fundamentally saying, um, "Don't send me to hell." He's fundamentally saying, "Don't make me be king on my own. I can't do this in my own strength." Um, he, because for him, the Holy Spirit is his equipping and anointing to lead and govern and function as king. He's, don't, don't read our new covenant understanding into what David's saying in Psalm 51. That's not what he meant. He saw the spirit depart from Saul when Saul ultimately sinned enough that the Lord rejected him. Don't do that to me is what David's saying. Um, so that's a good question. Good question. Other questions? We're going to start talking about Roman and Jewish time clocks, otherwise. I'm glad you threw in the example of the uh, Holy Spirit empowering those who are building the tabernacle to do such, such exceptionally fine work. Yeah. Imagine being a carpenter your whole life, and then all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes upon you, and you do this, like, unbelievable, you know, craftsmanship, this, you know, making these beautiful things. And then later on, someone's like, could you do that again? Like, no, I can't. That was a, one t- that was a one-off. Yeah. Well, and I think that even bleeds into poets and artists talking about feeling inspired, you know, is, is probably linking to that type of concept. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Zach. This kind of goes into next week as well, or um, the further section. So if it's uh, something you're going to cover, that's fine. Um, we'll save it for later. But I was just curious. Um, it doesn't mention all the disciples by the end of this week. So do you think, or, you know, is it uh, kind of, we should assume that he probably doesn't have the full group of disciples at that point in at Cana, at the wedding at Cana? No, correct, correct. Because we know Matthew is a tax collector in Jerusalem. So, so whatever this group is, and, and John doesn't really deal with the apostles. He just mentions disciples. In the other Gospels in particular, and I think I gave the reference in the notes, um, Luke 6, 12 to 16, he goes up in the mountain, he prays all night, he comes down, and he's got 12 and only 12, and he, we get a list of them. So here in John's Gospel, disciples would probably eventually include all these 12, but it's a looser term. When, when he went to the wedding in Cana with his disciples, there might have been 30 people with him. There might have been eight. Like, so there could even be people who weren't part of the apostles. Oh, absolutely. If, okay. if, if there were 30 people, there were people who weren't part of the apostles. Absolutely. The apostle is, seems, okay, in, let's go to Luke 6. There is an office that Jesus institutes to 12 and 12 only. An office that the book of Acts picks up. When one falls, they need to be replaced. That office is unique and distinct from Disciples. And even people can be sent called, because apostle means sent one. So you can, there's people who are called apostles in Romans that aren't listed in the 12 at the end of Romans 16. So there's the office of apostle, which is closed. New Testament, people today want to call themselves apostles. 
and I got some questions for them. But um, Luke six, Luke six, verse twelve. In those days, he went up on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples, that's the group, and chose from them twelve whom he named, and that's the key, he named them. This is a title, apostles, and then we get the list. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there's, there's an office or a title given, which is distinct from in John, just the disciples. And I, he certainly hasn't gathered all these people yet. Because remember, Peter's going to leave, go back to his boat for the chronology in Luke to happen. So the, so the concept is this. There's a prophet outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness. And, and if remember, three times a year, the men have to go to Jerusalem. So you're already taking time off from work to do that. Presumably, my guess would be, on the way to or from Jerusalem, you'd go out to the camp of this prophet. And that way, John the Baptist could have access to all of Israel, not just the people who lived locally, right? And so you, you, you're spending some time in the camp of this prophet. There hasn't been a prophet in 400 years since Malachi. And, and so you're in the camp of the prophet, and then the prophet says, see, okay, with whatever time you've got, you spend it with Jesus, and then presumably you go back home. And then when Jesus finds Peter in Luke 5 and fishing, and says, come, follow me. This is a call now to something different, full-time, vocational. And then in the next chapter, he's going to name him an apostle. So this is distinct from that. These are guys who are, but while they're able to be away from home, they're traveling with the shift that's happened. They're no longer disciples of John the Baptist. They're disciples of Jesus. Um, But no, but that gets picked up in Acts. That's where they like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Angie? Sort of a silly question, but in your opinion, does the word anointed get abused by the modern American church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of these terms, too, because the, once oh, the word is, it, does the word anointed get abused in the modern church in a lot of circles yes the the problem is like a lot of these terms the rest of our language stopped using it so outside of religious settings we don't use it it's the problem with tongues when king james translated tongue it meant language standard everyday word nowadays the only time you hear about tongues is when you're dealing with charismatics so already the word has taken on a nuanced uh ceremonial religious mystic bent that it never had um, likewise, and the problem is we can't drop the word anointed. Go to, go to first John. You and I are anointed. We have an anointing. <laughs> and so you can't drop biblical terms. You can't be like, well, that's this. Word. So we got to redeem it. We got to, we got to inform it biblically. It's why you can't get rid of religion. People are like, it's a relationship, not a religion. Read, read James one. You're going to want that true and undefiled religion. That's for sure. Right? So you can't just jettison religion. Just because it's, it's got bad connotations, we just need to define our terms. So in 1 John, where is it? Chapter, yeah, where is it? Let me look it up. I think it's three. Um, someone just want to search anoint in or anointing. Anointing. It's anointing. Anoint. Okay, I'll just anoint wild card. 326. Good job. 
Helper suitable, ladies and gentlemen. 326? My, my, first John, my first John 3 doesn't have 26 verses. Okay. Okay, okay. So first John 226. I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him. Now there, I believe it's referencing the Holy Spirit. And we have all, if you're a believer, been baptized by That's another term, baptism of the Holy Spirit. If, if you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're not in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, by or in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, and made to drink from one spirit. So you're not, a, you're not in Christ if you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The problem is the only people today primarily making use of that term want to connect it with a second blessing and speaking in tongues and other things. And so, yeah, these, these terms generally, generally get overused. The, the, the thing for us is we've got to use biblical terms. We, we aren't free to drop biblical terms. And just because some sect or some section is, is, is using or adding connotations to terms, we can't just jettison them. And I, I think, if, if anything, we talk too little about the Holy Spirit in our churches, conservative churches, because we don't want to look like we're being the people who make too much of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, yeah. So, no, your, your point is well taken. The, the word anointing, and it's an anointed, and it's usually connected with some experience, where here the anointing is connected with understanding Scripture, which is what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. When he comes, he will illuminate your minds. He'll bring to mind all the things that I've said. So the Holy Spirit's primary job in our life is to help us understand the things freely given to us by God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. And it's turned into instead an ecstatic experience. And so you're anointing and you're like writhing on the ground laughing. And no, you should be reading your Bible and understanding. That's what it means to be anointed, as I understand it. But no. But we can't drop the term because, you know, you get to get to 1 John and... That's an important enough point in today's world because a lot of our battles we fight in our culture are battles over language and the battle to correct the term instead of drop the term. A lot of battles over language in today's world. And when people say it's about religion, not relationship, what they mean to say is mostly true. It's not about a formal, dead, going through the motions, dead ritual, dead exercise. But they throw the baby out with the bathwater and, you know, when someone says it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. Does your relationship involve ceremonies like baptism and the Lord's Supper? Yes. Does your relationship involve regular times of meeting? <laughs> yes. This sounds an awful lot like <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than a religion. It's not less. It's a relationship. But it's, yes, it's, it's, it's deceptive to say it's just a relationship. It's not religion. It's a relationship that you're going to be coming every Sunday, <laughs> partaking in this meal with us. And, you know, it's a religion. Um, we've got to define our terms. But what people mean to say with that slogan. But, and you could do that. I could say fine if it wasn't for James. But as long as all of our Bible translations in James 1 say, true and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unsaved from the world, we can't start talking about religion being a bad thing. You can't. Matthew, you got something you want to say? No? Okay, microphone. You're raising, you're raising, you're raising your hand up there, sir. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, um, just in the, just thinking about the folks that, uh, that say like, oh, you know, it's about the relationship. Well, the, 
Bible makes a pretty clear point. We should not forsake the gathering together of each other. Like we should meet in groups and that's important for our relationship with God and for personal accountability with the word. And so if you say like, oh, it's about relationship, not religion. Like part of the relationship is it affects the religion. So just to build on your point, you can't just say it's a relationship because that's how you fall into heresy. If you don't have folks that are there to like, hey, I think you might be going a little bit, a little bit bonkers with that. That verse well, right there. And, and, and in, in the West and in America, there's the pendulum always swings and the church always reacts too strongly the other way. There's always two ditches. So when modernism came in, um, two sects, little church history, two sects of Christianity survived. You had J. Gresham Machen and, and his sort of orthodox thread. But the big other side was sort of the, 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 the tent meeting side of things. Um, the Second Great Awakening and Finney and some of those things. And there, and rightly so, the danger was unconverted pastors and clergymen. And so the, the reason they met in tents out of churches is they saw a lot of dead wood, a lot of orthodox churches where, like like uh, in the church at Ephesus in Revelation 3, uh, 2, you've lost your first love, you're dead, you're lifeless. And a lot of these churches eventually just became mainline denominations because... They didn't really care about anything. And so there, that's where the notion of a personal relationship. Your pastor might be able to cite the Westminster Confession, but does he have a person? And so there it was, does he, is it more than just dead orthodoxy? Or does he actually know the living God? And so in that context, personal relationship, stressing personal relationship makes sense. Now I would say the, the pendulum is so swung the other way that we got people, I don't, what do I need a church for? It's my personal relationship with Jesus. And so it, we probably, man, we don't want to go too far, I mean, because the danger is always the overreaction, right? But yeah, I think if anything, we got to move it. No, no. It's a personal relationship with Jesus, living in community with a bunch of other believers. <laughs> like, we got Sweet middle spot. Yeah. No, I, you, how many people do you know who are like, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and it's my personal relationship. Most of them. Me and Jesus going off into the sunset with my personal relationship. <laughs> no, that's far more what I run into than the dead Orthodox creed quoting people. And I've met some of them. I know they're paper popes. I've met them. But, but for every one of those I've met, I've met eight, you know, autonomous, I don't need a church, me and Jesus. That's my experience. But, but that's the pendulum swing, at least in, in the West, certainly. Um, As another question, if I may. Go um, for going it. back to the apostle deal, because there's some denominations of Christianity. They're like, oh, yes, this is like the Mormons, for example. The apostle is an office. You can fill it. There's like... My, the guy who's in charge of the church is filling the role of Peter, and like the Catholics believe something very similar, except with just the Pope filling that role instead of the different apostles. And they argue for the precedent for that, the deal in Acts. So like, oh, there's one of us is dead. Let's here's another one to replace him. And when you have you know Jesus, like these are my twelve. Well, it's pretty easy to say, well, you know, Jesus appointed these guys. This is it. Well, when you have a replacement happening by someone other than Jesus, it does give some credence to those types of arguments and structures how would you counter that <laughs> let's just take a look we get given the qualifications for an apostle and if somebody today this is why I, mean, I said i want to have some questions for them if they meet the biblical qualifications for apostle fair enough let's take a look at them acts one well no because we're not left like all the offices we're not left with like i wonder what it takes to be an apostle we're told here and in first corinthians nine um so acts one Thank you. 
Okay. 115. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who came a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I'll pause. If someone ever tries to say, we got a Bible contradiction here because the Gospels say he hung himself. When you hang yourself in the Middle East, how are you going to get him down? You're going to cut him down. And what's going to happen then? They're, they're citing here the memorable after effect. That's what people would be talking about. Would be, I won't go into greater detail because it's disgusting, but they, they, there's no contradiction here. He hung himself. That's how he died. And then the final thing he did was pretty spectacular apparently as well. Um, or they cut him down or the branch broke. But either way, if you just plug in the time element, no problem whatsoever. Um, so, uh, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men... Now, here we get the qualifications Peter gives. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter says, I want somebody who's been with us since the camp of John. Now, that would preclude presumably Levi or Matthew. But the key function is they witness the resurrection and they're testifying to the resurrection. So now go to 1 Corinthians 9. They're going to pick Matthias. Okay. First Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And again, we get connected with this apostleship. He's seen the resurrected Lord. So, um, and, wait a sec, works of an apostle. I got to look that one up. Works. No. How many tribes of Israel are there? How many 12 tribes of Israel are there? There's 13, 12 tribes of Israel. I think it's interesting. There's 13, 12 apostles. Whatever Paul is, seems to be something other than the 12. He is not one of the 12. He's an apostle, and he's not one of the 12. Um, so here, Paul links his apostleship, which is being challenged at Corinthians, by, I've seen the Lord, and you are, not my, are you not my work? Then go to 2 Corinthians 12. Twelve. Well, it's starting 11. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. And again, he's dealing with challenges to his authority. For I ought to have been commended by you, but I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So my two qualifications for someone who wants to stay there in the office of an apostle is, have you seen the risen Lord? And will you, with utmost patience, perform the signs and wonders of an apostle in my presence? And if you can do those two things, fair enough, you win. Fair enough. 
But you don't just get to say you're an apostle. Even Paul doesn't get to say he's an apostle. He has to point to evidence. Now, he does it only because there's a faction challenging him. But he does point to evidence and qualifications. So if someone wants to claim big A apostleship, have you seen the risen Lord? And will you, with all patience, perform in my presence signs and wonders? And if you can do that, you win. To quote um, my favorite succinct quotation, I think it's Dan Rude. No, it's not. It's not Dan Rude. It's one of the Parmaniacs guys. The simple fact that continuationists or charismatics make arguments to support their case is a sufficient and devastating rebuttal of their position. Which is to say, in the first instance, they didn't make arguments, they did miracles. That nobody countermanded, that nobody said, that's not legit. So if you got to write books and make arguments instead of showing up and like, like, again, I'll say this. We got somebody who's missing a hand and he comes up and the guy both articulates the gospel accurately and now the guy's got a hand. You win, right? No, right? You win. Because you didn't do it with demonic power because you articulated the gospel. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So you, you say Jesus is Lord. Guy's got a hand. You win. I got to make that fit in my theology. And here we are like 70 years after the, the first sproutings of the charismatic movements in the, in the West. And we're still writing books and making arguments. And that's not how things worked in the first instance. Jesus' miracles were absolutely... Like, they tried to blame them on demons, but they didn't, for a second, try to say they weren't happening. So, um, anyway, we're, we're going in, off into charismatic stuff, but In let's Paul's do it. case, the, um, the road to Emmaus conversion, standing in for having seen the living God, that yes. is his moment. He didn't live, yeah. um, he didn't see Jesus the way the other 12 did, but that would be his. Well, and he, he alludes in Galatians to Jesus even teaching him when he was in um, the Arabian Desert for up to possibly three years. Yeah, so Paul got to some extended time, and he, in, in 2 Corinthians, he was caught up to the third heavens. So Jesus had many, not just one, many. I just wanted to mention yes. that if yes. anyone had made the connection. Oh, yes. but Paul didn't walk around with Jesus. No, but he had he had. And he says, have I not seen the Lord? Yes. No, he points right to that as, his, as one of his two key credentials of apostleship, big A apostleship. So again, if someone wants to say they're an apostle, it ought to be... Easy enough to clarify, right? I'll just hold you to the same standards that Paul had, held himself to, you know. And uh, if you meet him, you win. Um, not, I mean, and this and this gets back to it's not whether God heals or doesn't heal; it's whether God gives gifts of healing that can be commanded by the user, that can be functioned by the user, is a different question than does, does God heal. Paul could do signs and wonders on command. He could, he could do them to demonstrate his, his apostolic credentials. That's different than does God heal or not today. Um, and so I have no doubt God heals people's back pain, but whenever I've... And I've got some dear, dear friends who are, who, who are continuationists. I'm not trying to mock it or anything. Um, but whenever you try to... Whenever I've... Tr- Whenever I've tried to look into it, when I first became a believer, I really did look into it because Christians are foolish. This in my hometown looked foolish, but it's not, that's par for the course. Lord, if this is what you're up to, if you're working with these people, I want to know, or whatever. And it was always like my mysterious back pain is mysteriously gone. It was, it was never my missing fingers back. 
it was never it was never my broken bone is healed. Um, it was always un miraculous in the sense of it. Was, <coughs> it was not like what possible explanation could we have for this other than the power of God. It was it was not um, what Paul describes there. Patiently done with with signs and wonders. It was well maybe. I'm glad your back feels better. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, right? But nothing, nothing wondrous happened here that I can see. <laughs> okay. Yes, Zach. Um, it seems like knowing if, so- if someone did claim that they saw the resurrected Lord and were with him, yeah. that that would be a hard thing to verify. Sure. So would that kind of come back to what you said before of like, if they could perform signs and wonders? Yeah and they were clearly articulating the gospel, then you could pretty easily assume yeah. if they said that they saw you're, Jesus you're clear, in there. The, the rationale why I say signs and wonders in the gospel is you're utilizing supernatural power. Either that's demonic power, it's the power of God. And no demon is going to say Jesus is blessed, Jesus is the Christ. So if you can articulate the gospel and you're clearly using supernatural power, there's no question what you're doing or who you're from. That, that's why I put those two things together. And, and this, this, is, this is, again, the purpose of signs and miracles. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, Jesus demonstrates his compassion by healing the sick. But in our study in Luke, there came a clear point where Jesus stopped doing miracles because the primary function of the miracles was not... It wasn't like they ran out of sick people. Now everyone's healed. Good, I can stop doing that. Jesus was putting his messianic credentials out for display for a limited time. And after that limited time, in John's gospel, it's going to come in 12. He hid from them. He removed himself from them. And in in Hebrews chapter 2, we get this. Therefore, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who believe, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders. Why? A pause. Why would the first generation apostles and the first generation church be given signs and gifts like we see in Corinthians? Well, we know at least part of the purpose is to confirm the message. And, and, the, and understand the significance of the message in the first instance was stop doing temple, start doing this, right? So you, for, to tell a faithful Jew, don't bring your lamb up to the Passover this year like Moses commanded you. Don't go to the temple and perform in the temple ritual. God has sent his son, the lamb of God. There's a big like, you better be right, <laughs> Because Moses told me to go do this. No, no, it's fulfilled. And so when that message first came, God testified to it with signs and miracles and wonders. And he's free to do that today if he wants. But if you're wondering, I, I have not seen, nor do I have any expectation to see, a sign or wonder like that. God, God can do what he wants to do. He's free. He hasn't said he won't. But I have no expectation that I'm going to see in my lifetime on this earth a sign or a wonder. I may, I haven't yet. Um, But we know that God was testifying to it. But that's consistently the pattern we see in Scripture with miracles. The periods of miracles are limited to Moses. I mean, consistent miracles. Moses' ministry, Elijah and Elisha. 
and Jesus and the apostles. In, in biblical times, th- those are the big clusters of miracles. Um, and so, as I thought through this years ago, uh, let me, let's make it really, really clear. If, if somebody came to me, let's, let's suppose, remember how like back in um, at the end of August, I flew out to New Hampshire to do a funeral? Somebody came up to me and they said, I'm, I'm a prophet from God. No, no, no. Let's just say they said that. Can I say they're not? I can't say they're not. What I can say is not to me or not. Like, I haven't received you as a prophet, but whatever. And they say, well, I have a message for you from the Lord. Okay. Okay. I'll hear it. I'll hear it. You, you shouldn't get on that airplane. It's going to crash. No, well, this is similar to what, what, what uh, Agabus told Paul, right? Don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get bound. Don't go to New Hampshire, Jeremy. You're going to get bound and delivered over to the New Hampshireans. Hampshireites, right? Um, my, my, what do I do now? So some, no, no, this is an ethical issue because if this person is indeed a prophet, am I free to not listen to them? No. On the other hand, I've given my word and I made a commitment to go to a funeral. Am I free to just break that? No. Well, the pattern I see in scripture would be, okay, give me a sign to confirm your message. This is what Hezekiah does, right? Hezekiah's sick and he's dying and he's like, Lord, give me some more life. And, and the prophet comes and he says, the Lord has heard your prayer. You're not going to die. Okay, what, what do you want your sign to be? I want to see my, uh, my shadow go backwards on the stick. What's the purpose of that? To confirm the word of the prophet. Likewise, when um, the, the virgin shall conceive is the confirming sign for the message of what God has said. So I would say biblically, okay, Lord, if, if you want me to, re- I'll receive this. Can you confirm this with, with a sign? Can you confirm this? However you choose, but confirm it clearly to me. Otherwise, I'm going to be left saying, look, God can, I mean, it's tough because when someone says, I heard God's voice, you go to Abraham. If you're going to try to kill your own child, it better be God who talked to you. You better be right. And so on the one hand, I have to, I have to concede if God wants to make it clear it's God and not some internal voice, he can do that. I don't know how he did that with Abraham, but he did do that with Abraham. It was good of Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah with Isaac, right? So on the one hand, can God make it clear to somebody it's God? I'm not going to say he can't, right? But for that then to cross, so your experience to cross across that line to me to bind my conscience that's where the issue comes down. So when someone tells, I, I meet people, they tell me about things they've seen, and if it encourages your faith, awesome. As long as you're not trying to get me to change how I act in response to it, I don't need to verify it. Well, do you believe them? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Someone says, I had a vision. I saw an angel. Uh, if, 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 if the result was, I love God more, I'm more faithful in my walk, I hate my sin more, I love God's word more, whatever it is that happened to you, I'm a fan of. I think that's a good thing. It only matters to me when you want to cross that line to me and get me to act or do something. Like, don't get on that plane. And now, look, God can make it clear to you it's him. He's got to do that to me. And he needs to do that plainly. It's not going to be, I'm just going to go wait and have a little experience. Like, he needs to do that plainly to me. Um, that, that's, so when people ask me about reports of miracles out in, in the Middle East, and what do you think? Like, if, if people come into faith, yay. I'm a fan. Who am I to say God isn't doing that? Who am I to say he is? I, I have no knowledge, right? And, and so I, I don't get caught up on like, well, do you think it's real or not? Why do I need to think it's real or not? What possible 
stewardship and responsibility that I have depends on me determining if it's real or not. Um, God can do what he wants to do. If someone says they saw an angel, could they have seen an angel? Is there any reason they couldn't have? No. Do I think this on it? I'm not amening it. I'm not agreeing. Okay. Um, question, and we're, we're off far afield in the, these things, but fair enough. Any, we got five minutes. Questions, clarifications on this? I don't want to overstate or misspeak. And if, if I've challenged or said something you've got questions with, let me know. Um, Cody. Uh, just a quick question about yeah. the whole uh, asking for signs. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I understand this one correct, but just for a clarification, you know, when Jesus yeah. says, you know, it's a faithless and wicked generation that yeah. demands a sign. Yeah. You know, compare that to like when Hezekiah was saying, or yeah, you know, what is the sign that I will not die? Right. That, what that was. So would you say that's mostly because the Pharisees were asking because they didn't believe him? They didn't want to. Whereas anyone else that was asking for a sign was genuinely wanting it to be, yeah, yeah. Let's go, let's go to first not, John six, not first John. John six. We read this earlier today, and I, I think it's really significant. Um, six twenty six. Jesus has fed the five thousand. He's left them because they wanted to make him king. He's walked on the water across the sea. They've seen Jesus on the other side of the sea. They've gotten some boats. They followed him over. So imagine meeting you here, Jesus, right? And verse 26, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? They didn't see signs. Of course they saw signs. That's the whole reason they got in the boats. What Jesus is saying, I think, is you didn't understand the significance of the sign. You just saw a free meal. And so the sign is meant, I mean, even Jesus did miracles to prove who he was. Jesus did not come down and say, I'm the son of God, trust me. He did signs. Now, for those who have faith, they saw, they understood. These people ate a meal. He's going to highlight it really clearly. Keep reading in John 6, right? Do not work for the food that perishes, which he's suggesting what they want. They're working for food that perishes. They want another free meal. As best as we can guess in Jesus' day, about 80% of your income went to feeding yourself. Because remember, the land is generational. The land is tied with the people, and so you can't sell it away. You can basically lease it till the next year of Jubilee. So about 80%, as best as we can tell, about 80% of your income went to food. So free food is a big deal. So do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to do the work of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. They said to him, then what sign do you do? And then they're going to make a suggestion just to give him a hint. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. These are the people who just ate food. So when Jesus says you didn't see the sign, they just want nothing. Do, do it again, Jesus. Do it again. Do what you did yesterday, today. And Jesus is rebuking that. So, so I would not, my only challenge to a sign would be if somebody, and I'm going to speak clearly, if somebody wants to come and attempt to bind my conscience, which a prophet from God can rightly do, because Jesus can bind my conscience. So if God raises up a prophet, that, that prophet, 
I should listen to. So if somebody wants to come to me and bind my conscience, I'm going to say, Lord, you need to confirm this. So I'm not just wanting to go out and call out God, test God, give me a sign. But if, if somebody claims to have that authority, then Lord, you're going to need to confirm it with some sort of sign or wonder or something. That's the one case where I'd say, then I want, if Paul points to it, if, if the Corinthian church got those same credentials that Paul points to, I'm, I'm going to ask for it. In the case where somebody's coming to me trying to bind my conscience. If I meet somebody over lunch and they say, Hi, I'm an apostle. Pass the ketchup. Thanks. Nice to meet you. you know, until, until it matters to me, I'm just going to try to be at peace. I'm like, okay. Um, you know, now, the second, like, I'm an apostle. Give me the honor of an apostle. Now I'm like, okay, so you've seen the Lord and you've done the... Now that's different. So I'm, I'm trying to narrow it down to the particular edge case where someone's calling upon me to act differently because of their office and their authority. Okay, now I'm going to need to see the credentials. Now I'm going to need to see the paperwork. Um, and as opposed to, because you're right, Jesus does rebuke people. Constantly, give me a sign, give me a sign, give me a sign, give me a sign. Fair enough. Okay, we're at time, people. Thank you. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.